life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Max Cryer, here he is, uh, fossicking through the books of a week, answering where possible uh, questions about phrases and words in the English language, where they come from. And we all pretty much, I'm sure, understand what a country mile kind of means, but a mile is a mile is a mile, Max. Well, yes, that's why the word means is not quite right, Graham, mm. because we know what a country mile signifies, but it is, as you so rightly say, a mile is a mile. Uh, but the term country mile somehow seems to me that, that a mile in the countryside seems to be longer than an ordinary, real mile. It's a very old term. It's so old that age and origin can't be pinned down exactly, but it's believed to be because people in country areas lived further apart than in urban areas, often with great spaces of land in between rural properties. So country people were accustomed to travelling considerable distances to visit each other or to transact business. Almost every journey was several kilometres, but rural people thought of that several kilometres as a quick trip. Whereas to urban people, the quick trip of several kilometres in a rural area seemed to be slow and ponderous and bumpy, even though not held up by traffic lights or pedestrian crossings. So they would say a country mile, meaning that the distance was long and hard and much bigger than an ordinary mile. Now, when we say something doesn't come within a country mile, we're indicating that whatever it was missed something by a very long way because of the frequent but untrue concept that a mile in the country is longer than what urban people call a mile. Here's an example. Um, this concept of country mile has been around for a long time. Here's a poem I found, 1829, Frederick de Kruger, and a line of it says... The travelling coach had set me down within a mile of yon church town. T'was long indeed a country mile, but well I knew each field or style. So he was using that expression in 1829. Mm -hmm. So the term country mile still crops up. Not long ago, uh, I heard a sports commentator say that, quote, Although two players are clearly leading ahead, one of those is a country mile ahead of the other. Right. That's on a sports field that has nothing whatever to do with travelling, but the impression was quite clear. Should be really a rural kilometre now, shouldn't it? Yes. I was aware of that when I was doing the work, but I don't hear anybody saying rural kilometre, except mm. you, except I hope they would say kilometre. Would you, would you kill a kilometre rather than kilometre? Well, it is a kilo is a thousand metre. Yeah. But we it's don't a, always sound things as though, like from the Greek. Oh, but it depends how what what level of pedantry you oh, have. Kilometre, you say kilometre. Well, it's kilometre. It's a thousand metres, so yeah, it's yeah, kilometre. Yeah. Do you say controversy or con controversy? I say controversy. Do you? <laughs> yeah, because it's controversy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let's go for soccer. Well, I don't know why you said that with an American accent, because it couldn't be more British. Um, the word was invented in Britain. It was also one of the first names of what is now primarily known as football. Language commentators tell us that in the early days of the sport among the upper echelons of British society, the usual term for this sport was soccer. 
because on October the 26th, 1863, a group of teams in Auckland, in England, decided to get together and they created a standard set of rules which would be used at all matches. They formed the rules of, quote, association football, with the association distinguishing it from many other types of football sports in existence. Why did they use the word association? Did you get into that? Because it was kind of a committee. It was a, 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 oh. a, a jointure of people setting down rules. Right, right. That's so um, the, the word association is actually the clue to the whole thing because in schoolboy trend of the time, the middle of the word association, S-O-C-C, had the ending er added, so came the slang word soccer, long before the name of just football began to be instigated. I find that bizarre. It's true. It's true. Yeah, but you've got a big fat word, association, and they just, you have to get right in the middle there, get rid of an A and an S and put a sock, just use the sock in the middle. Were you ever a schoolboy? Yeah. Did you ever do anything or imagine anything slightly bizarre? Yeah, this is bizarre. Well, it's witty, like you. So, but why would you even do that anyway? Well, they did. Yeah. Um, so the word soccer became the name just football, began to be instigated. Now, the change is somewhat weirdly associated with the British social structure because the boys we're talking about, the schoolboys we're talking about, upper-class players tended to prefer saying soccer, but gradually as the game became more popular with the middle and lower classes, the word football gradually began dominating over soccer, remembering that the official name was Association Football. Now, in the 1860s, as in most recorded history for several centuries, there were many other sports around the world played with feet and a ball, including England. As a game of rugby developed in Britain, and let us remember that had nothing whatever to do with anybody called William Webb Ellis, schoolboys of the day liked to nickname everything as they had nicknamed soccer, and they added er to rug, so rugby was at the time called rugger. Oh, I've heard it called footer as well. Yes, footer, rugby, rugger and footer. Now, association In was, the better schools, Max. <laughs> it depends. Association football was by then widely known as soccer and sometimes soccer football. And after a somewhat wobbling period when both soccer and football were being used, the adherence of just the word football won over those who used the term soccer. And those who played rugby, completely erroneously named after rugby school, and the use of the two words rugby and football seem to have settled down in separate places. Yeah. People get upset. What? Some people get upset when you call football soccer. Yes, oh, I know. Yes, that's why I, I sort of did this with great detail because I yeah. thought people might be listening. Why but would it they was, get so upset? It was an upper-class schoolboy's abbreviation of the word association. It's that mm. simple. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with the. It, it's just to be understood. If you go to America and you call soccer football, they're going to think you're talking about a different game. So why? Well, be, you are in America because football in America has no resemblance to no, what we would. <laughs> no, well, it's it's the gridiron game, yes. the NFL, whatever they want to call see, it. But uh, why would you go? Why would you be upset about that? Well, I don't know, but I'm having a guess here because, as I tried to point out delicately, um, the game itself was originally played by the upper classes, yeah. and they were the ones who took sock out of the middle of association. 
And whereas the ordinary blokes right. in poorer suburbs played a kind of football. Uh, yeah. So it's possible, I'm saying possible because I don't know for sure, yeah. but I think that there might be a, a sort of a, a lasting um, caution about saying the word football when you mean soccer because you're being lower class. Isn't that bizarre? Oh, the Normans. It's that 1066 all over again. It's the class system that they brought in. Yet again, another example, mucking up the place. Do you think they'll be staying long? I don't think that the two words can be taken seriously as mucking up the country. They bloody think they can. (laughs) Anyway, um, yeah, so football, rugby has become the Toffs game. Oh, other way round, yes. You mean yeah. the three? Well, no, it hasn't. It's become the rich people's game. Oh, yeah. Because rugby well, players are much richer than I mean. Generally, you know, yeah, they go yeah. Eton. They play. They'd play footer. They wouldn't play that awful soccer thing. I thought, I thought I might see your eyebrows raised, but they didn't when I said something about the erroneous connection with um, rugby school and William Webb Ellis, which mm. has been exposed as a complete total lie. And rugby used to be much, much more a kicking game. That's how the. You get the funny terms like a try. That's the big thing worth seven points or something around there. Um, seven point pie. Oh, seven, lots of points. And a conversion's not worth many at all. But it used to be that the try, you, you'd get to the other end and that would give you the great opportunity for Kicking a ball between the posts, which was the entire point of the early, early but game. Do, well, I, I'm speaking out of my depths here because I don't know. But when you say getting near the other end, you'd have to be further away from the other end to kick a ball over the goalpost than you would be to um, put it over the conversion line. Oh, I've lost you. Oh, well, you would have. Shall I call Graham? You've got advice for Graham Henry here or Steve Hansen. <laughs> No, I don't think I'd understand them. <laughs> There's a lot of technical language being used. Yeah. I'll stick to the name. Soccer is an abbreviation of association with an upper schoolboy air added to the end, and football was what the other boys in the streets played. Thank you. We'll uh, we'll move on because yes. we, we may well get lost in a mire. <laughs> I think mile. we already did. <laughs> Right. Now, the red carpet. When did this come into use? Why red, I suppose? And who who was doing it? Actually, you said it. You said the answer without realising it a minute ago when you mentioned that it was coming up and you talked about celebrities walking on the red carpet. And curiously enough, that's a very close reason why we have the expression. But we'll, we'll start with the two parts. There are two parts to the answer. Red carpet treatment means that someone is being treated as a VIP. Red carpets are firmly associated with arriving and departing VIPs, but what is the link between VIPs and red carpets? Red doesn't necessarily signify VIPness. You can associate purple with... You just said penis, Max. I said, what? VIPness. Yes. (laughs) There's a hyphen there. Oh, sorry. (laughs) um, You can associate purple with royalty. Saffron yellow for some Eastern religions. A high-ranking Roman Catholic like the Pope might be symbolised by white. Mm. Bill Gates' carpet could be gold-covered and various political colours like blue for national, yellow for the ACT Party. It goes on and on. But there's a fairly strong tradition that red indicates importance. And there's no doubt that the use of a red carpet and the phrase roll out the red carpet gives immediate indication of treatment which is luxurious or respectful or both. 
It's a very interesting expression because the concept of using a red carpet for important people is so old it's mentioned by the Greek dramatist Aeschylus in 400 BC. Get out, really? Mm, really. And red has consistently cropped up in many contexts where something important is indicated. But we move on to the actual question. The growth of the expression red carpet has only gone into general use fairly recently, starting 1934. During the 1930s, there was a train service between New York and Chicago called the 20th Century Limited. Now, the train had only first-class carriages, and it was famed for... Where everyone else walk. Well, they just didn't take that ride. Right. They, they got there some other way. Okay. And it was famed, this train, for its accommodation of the high-class dining people. Now, obviously, only rich or important people travelled on this train, and the path walking onto the train at Chicago Station and New York Station was always a strip of red carpet. 1934. So the concept of important people in red had been around for 2,000 years, but the actual phrase red carpet treatment and roll out the red carpet appear to have risen from that train and its very simple advertising trick of laying a strip of red carpet in the station so that passengers felt that they were important, even if they were only rich, which isn't actually the same thing. It's, uh, it rings true, that, the, as the beginning yes. of the tradition, because yes. it's the beginning of America becoming more, uh, on the rise, very much on the rise in global cultural And also, also America's um, obsession with class distinction. I mean, they pretend not to be classless, but here they are putting out a red carpet and a train which only rich people can use. Yeah. And that's not what you think of as America being the land of the free. Anyway, I am looking at the... Well, land of free to be as rich as you like. Well, as rich as you can be. I don't yeah. think light comes into right, it. Right, right, right. But we'll look at tomorrow's date. 42 years ago tomorrow, a new word was entering our everyday language. For some time, the national government had been considering amalgamating police records and driving licence information and all of the details into a central database. It was considered that this could be achieved by organising a recently available system called a computer. Ooh. And there was considerable public antagonism to this. It was a threat to civil liberties, a sinister real-life tool of antagonism, a similar fictional image of Big Brother, but the government was adamant that such development was necessary to keep track with modern advancements. They did, however, plan to appoint a privacy commissioner who would investigate any allegations which were made about abuse of power. So, on September the 9th, 1976, the go-ahead legislation was passed that the computer, which would fill a whole building, would go ahead, which it did in Wanganui. And indeed, quite soon, there were two breaches of confidentiality. One involved confidential file information being illegally passed on to an activist. And another point, a man blew himself up with a homemade bomb mm. right at the computer building's front door. That is a remarkable event in New Zealand history. That doesn't happen often in this country, does it? Well, it must have been a fierce disregard for... The government's honesty and efficiency, because the system yes. the system kept going till 1995, 
and the computer centre closed then, but the stored information in it all went to Wellington. What is intriguing, um, I was passing through Wanganui roundabout when I was there, yeah. was the size of the building in which our computer in those days yeah. took up. Yeah. I mean, the idea of carrying one in your pocket was completely out of the question. Yeah, true. I want to, to, oh, yeah. Well, um, maybe they could just do it all in a phone box now. Well, you can carry a laptop, can't you, oh. and do amazing things. The man who killed himself was a young anarchist by the name of Neil Roberts. That's right, he was, yes. And he graffitied on the side of the Wanganui Computer Centre, we have maintained a silence closely resembling stupidity. Is that so? Yeah. He was quite literate then. Yeah. So, so uh, Some true anarchists are. <laughs> yes, but... Um, I found that when I came across this, I found it interesting that it was 42 years ago from, well, tomorrow, yeah, yeah. 42 years ago, the word computer was still a dangerous word. Yeah, true. Uh, okay, Max, thank you very, very much. And just a reminder, if you want to ask Max anything to do on the subject matter, the English language, uh, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. The email clicky thing is easily seen there just ask away those emails come to me i pass them on to max if you want to ask something on the facebook page that's easy enough to do uh just right away i'll pass them on and uh max will find them in his inbox and rummage through and do the research oh and we didn't um talk about aretha franklin a couple of years a couple of, a couple of weeks ago she died there's been the funeral since and everything you were you saw Aretha Franklin at the Grammys? Yes, I did. She never she didn't sing, and I only saw her briefly. But it was impressive. I remember it extremely well because she was, she had an aura about her which was very noticeable and very memorable at the Grammys, which is saying something, which is filled with number one celebrities and glittering things going on. Mm. But what happened was that there were uh, celebrities coming onto the stage and announcing things and presenting various awards. Mm. And when it was a certain award that Aretha Franklin was to present, she came onto the stage and I was immediately impressed with the sort of, not uh, humbleness is not quite the right word, but the sort of anti-glamour, pleasant confidence that she had. She just stood there in a sort of rather plain dress and she wasn't a beautiful woman, but she had an aura about her. Yeah. But the best bit was that everybody in America uses a um, camera cue from a television camera all the time, right through the Oscars and everything. And she was looking to see for the screen to say, to put the words of what she was to say. Mm. And there was a man standing in front of it. And that's why I remember her so well, because in the most polite kind of way, she said... Would the gentleman in the green jacket mind moving to the right or the left, please? Oh, no, this is like someone in front of the sight screen in the Basin Reserve. But it's true, and, and of course everybody knew what she meant. But she sort of, I wouldn't say got away with it, because that's not fair. So the bloke in the green coat must have moved, because yes. she smiled, and then she went into her speech, because she could see the screen to read it. Right. But in a glittering evening, with every star you've ever heard of, I do remember... Five minutes of Aretha Franklin on stage, even when she didn't sing. She had the X factor. Yeah, yeah. She's got something. She had something, all right. Um, and, oh, how was the after party? Did you go to Paul McCartney's place after that? <laughs> Paul McCartney doesn't have a place in Hollywood. He's <laughs> in a hotel. <laughs> all right, Max. He was you. sitting next to me. Does that count? <laughs> was he really? <laughs> Matt, but Paul McCartney was sitting next to you. Yes. What did you chat about? 
Well, the chatting's not a not a sort of practice at an oh. event like that because you're watching what's happening and watching Aretha Franklin saying, "Well, the man moves so she could read the cue." Right, right, okay. Far out. When was that? Can you tell us? Oh gosh, nineteen something. <laughs> Spot on, Max. <laughs> Thank you very much, Max, and uh, we'll talk again soon. You're tuned in. To Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Later on tonight, don't miss this. How big can a tsunami wave get? And But we were still on the front of the wave. We were swept up over the land and up above the trees. That's where I assumed that we were going to end up. He was talking about a 500-foot wave. He's not kidding, is he? Uh, you know, 500-meter wave in, in 1958, so uh, it's oh. like 1,700 feet. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing thing. They, they do happen. Do be listening later on. But the world of human statistics is coming up next with Jonathan Dodd. Kiwis are dropping everything for the AirAsia Mega Sale. And with such low fares, you should be too. Fly Auckland to the Gold Coast from just $109. Sale ends tomorrow. Book now at airasia.com. T's and C's apply. In South Auckland, everybody knows somebody who sold with Gary Singh. Yeah, he sold most of the houses on my street. He sold my family's house back in uh, 2015. He's the South Auckland specialist. List with the agent who knows and loves South Auckland as much as you do. Gary Singh from Ray White. Yeah, Gary sold our property. He's probably going probably gonna to sell my kids' property as well. You know, he's sort of like part of the family. He's like part of the furniture. <laughs> Like a comfortable chair. Wait, don't make me laugh. <laughs> Google Gary Singh from Ray White. He's a South Auckland specialist. Licensed REAA 2008. Always read the label and take as directed. Sleep Drops Auckland. The team of sleep specialists at Sleep Drops are totally committed to developing cutting-edge formulations for all ages, lifestyle stages and sleep challenges. We don't copy anyone. We don't need to. Having just conducted an outstanding consumer trial and in the planning stages of two more clinical trials, trust me when I say we do research. Trust me when I say we love sleep. Trust me when I say you can trust Sleep Drops. Check out our full range at sleepdrops.co.nz. At Fletcher Living, we're ready when you are. Surrounded by parkland and native bush, it's hard to believe Kofi Ridge West Harbour is just 17 kilometres from the CBD. We have a range of fixed-priced, spacious new homes available now. From compact terrace to two-level standalone homes, there's something for everyone. Visit our show home this Saturday and Sunday. Located off Moya Road, West Harbour. Fletcher Living. Love your new home. Kiwis are dropping everything for the AirAsia Mega Sale. And with such low fares, you should be too. Fly Auckland to the Gold Coast from just $109. Sale ends tomorrow. Book now at airasia.com. T's and C's apply. Auckland. 100.6 FM. Radio Live. The Weekend Variety. Wireless. The World of Human Statistics with Ipsos, Ipsos Research Director Jonathan Dodd. Hello, Jonathan. Yeah, g'day, Graham. This week we're looking at fake news, post-truth, filter bubbles, uh, are they other people's problems, ours, and people's attitudes towards them, and this is globally, and some really interesting yeah. results. Oh, I love this. I mean, you might recall weeks ago when we've been talking about cognitive biases, and one of the ones we talked about was how we all have a tendency to overstate our own capabilities and be more critical of other people's, yeah. which is why we're all above average drivers. Yeah, so it's interesting that 
um, we ask people, you know, um, to what degree do you think that other people live in a bubble on the internet? And obviously we phrased it a bit more carefully, but, you know. So overall, our 27 countries, 65% of people said, yep, other people live in a bit of a bubble. And I don't. No, I don't. No, of course not, because when the ads actually said, um, what about you, you know, um, 58% said they're better than average at spotting fake news, for example, or not living in a filter bubble. So it's the old case where... Um, the majority of people think they're better than average. Yeah. Oh, I remember there was this one of those big shows that they throw on TV and said once every 50 years, the state of the nation or something like that. And uh, they have all sorts of rather, you know, pious people umming and ahhing about who we are and where we're going. And just, I forget who it was, but just straight at the camera, on their hind legs, said, you may be shocked to know that half of New Zealand is below average IQ. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah. don't know what other figure it could ever be. Yeah. So, yeah, 58% I'm better than average at spotting fake news. Only 28% think they're not. It's really interesting what you send the countries because I think, I mean, with all these countries, you get some interesting results where you can think, you can look at the actual the history of the media or government control of the media and you can see some understandable sorts of results. Mm. But then, And then, of course, the other one, which is fun, is looking at, at, at the states. But, for example, when it came to fake news, Hungary, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia and China. Now, you know, when you, those countries have all had major political issues. They've all got, you know, Malaysia, Saudi Arabia, China, they've all got very authoritarian governments that control the media to various extents. Yeah. Um, and maybe they're putting out a bit of... Um, propaganda and people just sit there going, yeah, yeah, it's another wonderful thing our government's done or something like that. Or or maybe they're taught to believe their stuff's correct and the stuff coming out of the West is wrong. But, yeah, um, that's quite interesting. Hungary's an interesting outlier on all sorts of yeah. things these days, isn't it? And um, they are. It's way up there at 69. Uh, it's fresh air and then Malaysia with 60% confident that they can identify fake news. Yep. And they've had a very turbulent time, of course, so maybe that's it. Same yeah. with Turkey. Turkey yeah. People in Turkey and Peru and Chile. You know, where there's been a dictator or major civil unrest, that's where people think they're better than average at spotting fake news. And maybe, you know, it's because there's more fake news to spot. Yeah, yeah, that's maybe it's true. Maybe more overt. Yeah. You know? Oh, Cause man. Because Japan was very low for most of these. Yeah. That, that's the other outlier, way at the other end, Japan. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, but they're you know very buttoned down, very homogenous society. Not a lot of um, you know, not a lot of drama or anything going on there. Yeah, but and it's interesting that, that only only thirty percent would say that they're better than average at spotting fake news. Is this um, a secret sort of a secret poll to find out who who's the most humble nation? <laughs> that will be it, and and and, and it's not the states. So, you know, in the States, the, the, the country most likely for its people to say, oh, it's other people in filter bubbles. Yeah. You know, it's other people. And then later on when we asked them, for example, about um, have you ever actually found you, you, yourself believing a story that you've later found out was fake and the U.S. is the highest there, mm. uh, 51%. Now, of course, that doesn't reveal how many times I believed a story that was fake, but they haven't subsequently learned it was fake. Hmm. Of course. Yeah, fake, um, unfortunately, can be translated in far too many areas as uh, something you don't want to believe or don't think it's, you just don't, don't agree with it. It'll be fake.
Yeah, and we ask people that kind of a thing. We said, um, you know, we, we gave people this thing. We said, look, people do things get wrong because we're not going to sit there and tough at people for giving certain answers. Um, and we asked them, we said, what are the biggest reasons why you think people get a lot of things wrong in their countries? And we've talked about this before about whether people understand the actual rates of immigrants or who causes crime and things like that. Um, 52% of people said it's the politicians misleading us. Yeah. So, and that was the biggest reason. Only slightly below that was the media. Mm. So after that, it was 49% around the world thinking the media are misleading. Now, it's all right to be biased because all media and all people are, but that's the difference between bias and actively misleading. And that's pretty sad. And those two groups that are supposed to lead and guide us are the ones that are least, you know, least trusted, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's all come about with... Um Oh, well, we can't let America lead us by the nose down this attitude as well. But uh, but because of the situation that it's in, you've got polarised partisan people on both sides. And they've, I, I think they actually, um, they know it works as far as trying to make a buck. And a lot of these media organisations are old school and they are um, flailing. And if, well, if if they if Trump baiting works, they will keep doing it. Yeah, although it's interesting because I was talking about this, um, looking at this recently that when you say Trump baiting, now apparently when you look at the stats, CNN has been um, hasn't been doing as well as Fox. No, In the ratings war Fox has been going up, and I think it's because if you're if you're backing if you you're backing the winner, then naturally enough you want to see stuff that supports. The horse you're backing, and it's all positive and good news, and we like good stuff, and so we lap it up, and that's Fox. Mm. If you support Trump, you enjoy sitting down and seeing all these wonderful things, and you get that schnud and Freud from knowing that the bloody Democrats are just whinging and they're losers. But if you're the Democrat on the other side, yes, it's fun to bait Trump, and he gives a lot of ammo for it, but it's it's not much fun being on the loser side, you know, and always railing and going, for goodness sake, this can't go on. It's just not a pleasant experience. No, no. The, the CNN has got to bait Trump and point at all the problems, but it doesn't make for a pleasant reading experience, a media experience, and at the end of the day, you're like, oh, you know, it's like when people just get too much of bad news and they switch off. Mm. Okay, yeah. and uh, trust in politicians... Falling! Oh my goodness, Sweden! Yeah, we didn't know. Yeah, but that's well. That's um. Yeah, the people most likely to say when we ask people, do you think that um the average person trusts politicians to tell the truth more or less or the same than they did thirty years ago? So yeah, eighty yeah. percent of people in Sweden saying the average people trusts politicians less. Yeah. You know, and that's only um, and that's just slightly ahead of South Africa. So what is this? You know, that that's pretty incredible. And then Chile and Hungary. So you've got some countries with some pretty um scary political backgrounds. And yeah, and right up there. we don't usually expect the Scandos uh, to be represented in this, but um, uh, I'd probably, I don't know, but yeah. probably well, what they're seeing out there in their cities and their environment um, isn't what they're being told is happening. Yeah, and I think when we've seen that a lot of these, the darker side of the Scandinavian countries that we see keeping popping up, particularly now that when they're dealing with um, a lot of the immigrants and situations, it's like, well, Denmark, Sweden, Scandinavia, they're, they all had their idyllic life while they had good, you know, good economies and homogenous populations. But once it gets mixed up, then, um, you know, it, it starts to crumble a bit. Mm. We've been seeing that. 
All right. Gaslighting is our um, <laughs> our concept. It comes from a movie called Gaslight. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's where... I knew there was a famous movie about it, but is that where the term comes from? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's where it comes from. Yeah. Okay. Rip into yeah, it. And the, yeah, and at the set, she was just, I say, a stroke of genius when I was thinking about what cognitive bias should we cover this week? And this came to mind. It's not strictly a cognitive bias, of course, but it is mind games. And this is when people um, try to gain more power by making their victims question their reality. Yeah. And it's often done in some pretty sad situations, you know, domestic abuse and things like that. There are famous cases of it. But I, I had to laugh when I was looking this up on the net and just reacquainting myself with it when it says it's a common technique of abusers, dictators, narcissists and cult leaders done slowly so the victim doesn't realise how much they've been brainwashed. Yeah. People who gaslight typically use the following techniques. I'll read these out and uh, listeners can, 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 can sort of think about... What well-known persons in our world today does this match? They tell blatant lies. They deny they ever said something, even though you have proof. They wear you down over time. Their actions do not match their words. They know confusion weakens people. They tell you or others that you're crazy, and they tell you everyone else is a liar. Right. <laughs> so this is incredible. It just, it's just total textbook Trump. It's, it's fascinating. Mm. Hey, great stuff, Jonathan. Thank you very much. And we'll talk again soon. That's the world of human statistics. And Thanks, coming up later, oh, very soon, in fact, oh my goodness, you wouldn't want to be near a landslip tsunami. They can get really massive. We discuss all that very shortly. Weekend Variety Wireless. Take a listen to this. A wild thing from the 1950s. A couple of people survived a landslip tsunami. They're different from your regular. What a thing from a BBC documentary. In 1953, the scientists left Lituya Bay baffled. But five years later, this rare phenomenon was to strike again. And this time, there were witnesses. The date was... Uh... Uh, July the 9th, 1958, we came into Latuya Bay about 8 o'clock in the evening. Uh, my son was with me. I was 8 years old at the time, and uh, being a child like I was, I was halfway asleep as well. Approximately 10.15, uh, there was a large rumbling noise from up at the head of the bay. There was a slight pause. I thought that everything was over with but some movement up there caught my attention out of the corner of my eye. And so I looked directly up there, and what I observed was a, like an atomic explosion. Of this big splash came a huge wave. It looked like just a big wall of water. He threw me a life preserver, and he's, he said, son, start praying. You're looking at death, and this is exactly my first thought. When the wave hit us, I did feel the boat all of a sudden start shooting upwards, skywards. I had 40 fathoms of anchor chain, and it started running out off the boat, came to the end of the 40 fathoms, just snapped it like a string. And then we were free, and but we were still on the front of the wave. We were swept up over the land and up above the trees. That's where I assumed that we were going to end up. The Ulriches were lucky. They rode the wave as it swept them above the trees and washed them back into the bay. 
Two other boats weren't as fortunate. They were carried by the wave into the open sea, where they were wrecked. I had never heard or seen anything like this. It was unbelievable. I couldn't imagine what could have caused any, anything. I kept wondering just what mechanism could have caused something like that. That from Alaska, a massive tsunami created by a landslip. And some research has come out just this week out of Alaska, out of that very place. Although, um, you know, you're in the biggest state in the Union, as someone said, uh, when you're in Alaska. Dr. Brett Wood-Higman, otherwise known as Hig, who's um, a geological researcher, something called Ground Truth Trekking as well, if you want to look him up, um, who's co-author of this paper. It's basically, Hig, you're saying that with glacier melts, we are losing retaining walls and may expect more of these cataclysmic things to be more frequent in the future. Yeah, well, you know, one, one, if you're going to get really broad on climate change, the, the issue comes down to change is bad. You've got, you know, the, uh, the, these mountains were long supported by having a glacier pushing up against them. They're also being eroded at that time, but in some ways they don't notice that because the ice is actually pressing up against their base. But then you remove that ice, and uh, that, that uh, mountain slope can become real unstable. It also, other factors are like this melts the permafrost out of the mountains, and the, that's some of the strength of the mountains. And when that glacier retreats, it's making this huge body of water. And I, I'm a tsunami guy, so that's kind of where I, I come in. And these landslides can fall down into that deep water and generate some, some pretty unimaginably huge waves. Yeah. Um, uh, they are different. Uh, we'll get on to that. But just to hark back to that Latuya Bay incident, I uh, don't think a lot of people would have heard of it, but it's a remarkable thing, remarkable enough for a BBC Panorama documentary. <laughs> yeah, well, the, um, so 1958, this big landslide and, and tsunami, this has been actually kind of the, it's, it's the example that all the scientists who are interested in these questions have been looking at for now you know, over half a century, um, it was it was the biggest in some ways, and also um, actually relatively well documented. There were people out there in the field right after it happened. They took a lot of measurements, um, and uh, and so a lot of the scientists who are trying to understand landslide tsunamis, um, both the landslide itself and how it hits the water, how it generates a wave, um, they they were looking at at Latuya Bay. And um, I've actually, I've, I've been there not really doing science, just kind of wandering through and poked around. I'd always wanted to try to understand um, uh, a little more about what happened there, uh, but it's been kind of too long now to look at the evidence it left behind. And then in 2015, there was a, uh, a, another um, amazing event, actually not that far away, um, a few hundred kilometers away in, in Tan Fjord. And the landslip type of tsunami it has a different dynamic different different physical properties with which makes them um well possibly much more cataclysmic we were, we, he was talking about a 500 foot wave he's not kidding is he uh you know 500 meter wave in in 1958 so uh, it's like oh. 1700 feet and then and then this this uh it, um so that's the that still holds the record all-time record for highest run-up now it there's a little a technicality there. It's kind of important. It's not the wave itself was 
not that high. It was probably uh, maybe it was more on the on the order of 500 feet. Um, we don't know exactly. It wasn't directly documented. But the way the splash went up the mountain, and and when you think of a splash, you maybe think of some spray going in your face. This was a splash that was strong enough that it flattened huge old growth trees. So. Um, some serious water went up over the top of this mountain, um, 524 meters, if I recall correctly. Okay, so 524 meters and flattened trees, and you can possibly see a, a bit of evidence of that with the uh, having no old growth trees there. Yeah, yeah. Actually, if you go on Google Earth now, find Latuya Bay, start poking around, you'll notice there's kind of the lighter green below the 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 1958 trim line and uh and then the darker green of the older forest okay now what are the dynamics of a landslip tsunami what makes them different from an earthquake generated one well so if you just just start from the earthquake tsunami that's something that actually um has overall been studied a lot more and in some ways a little easier to study um you get you get uh earthquake moves the ocean floor and um, if it just moves it horizontally it actually has no real uh, has you know at most minimal effect as far as a tsunami but if it moves it vertically and it moves quickly as earthquakes are prone to do um, it will it'll move the surface of the water in the same way that it moves the um, the ocean floor so so maybe if the ocean floor moves up three meters then the ocean surface moves up three meters, too. And you get this big bulge of water or, or big depression, it can be in some cases. Often it goes, it's, we're talking about earthquakes where it goes up. And, um, you know, water likes to be flat. So what happens is that wave propagates outward, at, or that, that lump propagates outward as a wave. Um, this, one of the things that uh, characterizes at least the really big uh, um, earthquake tsunamis is that they, the, this lump in the ocean is over a vast area. So it might be, in some cases, um, like 200 kilometers by 1,000 kilometers would be some of the really big ones, and might be lifted by a few meters in, uh, on average through that area. Mm-hmm. Now, with a landslide, it comes down, and, and you know, if you picture throwing you know, a bowling ball, throwing a big cobble into the water, you've got kind of the right picture. It hits the water with enough speed that it actually creates this, Flash. It creates a huge hole in the water, actually pulls air down with it. You know, if you were to take a, a snapshot of that bowling ball hitting the water, you'd see that there's air pulled way down with the bowling ball as it hits. Same thing happens with the landslide, only on a scale where you could maybe slip a small village inside of that air bubble. It's a, you know, it can be even as big as like a kilometer across. Um, and so it produces this big splash. And um, one of the the most dramatically different things about that splash from uh, the, the, the hump in the water that's produced by an earthquake is that it, is, it can be a lot higher, and it's also a lot narrower. It's a lot smaller in uh, horizontal extent. When that forms into a wave, the wave is a uh, much shorter period. So the period of the wave is just how long it is between successive crests of the wave. Uh, wind waves, like uh, you might see, if you go to the beach any old day, you might see three seconds, five seconds, eight seconds between waves. If it's a really big storm, you might see 15 seconds. Um, a tectonic tsunami is vastly longer than this, like 20 minutes between peaks, wow. 10 minutes, things like that. Um, landslide tsunami comes in between at more like one minute or 30 seconds, two minutes, somewhere in that range. So that period ends up changing the way it interacts 
with the land um, in pretty dramatic ways. Uh, you can get, um, like, a, if, if you watch, there were some incredible videos taken of the uh, both the 2004 tsunami in, um, in the Indian Ocean and the Japan tsunami um, some years later, where they show these waves going inland. And one of the things that might be that um, I think is striking for a lot of people in those is that they look like this flood. And basically, the wave, um, it rises, but it's going to take, you know, 10 minutes or something, or five minutes, 10 minutes to rise to its peak. So it floods inland across the land. Um, often when people are trying to Photoshop a, 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 a um, tsunami, they, like, take and put a city there, and they show this huge curling wave. Well, that's actually maybe a bit more analogous to what you actually would see with um, with uh, a landslide tsunami. That here you have something that is the period is you know longer, but only a few times longer than a wind wave, and it's it can be gigantically high, yeah. 100 meters, 200 meters, and so it actually can curl and break. You um, on where that where the majority of the wave is involved in that curl, it can uh, it forms this uh, much much more violent interaction. So you are really now, are, you're talking about the your classic Hollywood wave. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. It it it, it does become more. Uh, there was a there's actually a movie that came out uh, not long ago in Norway about a place there where that's threatened by these landslide tsunamis and and um, um, in some ways it was like the most terrifying movie I'd ever seen because the some of the characters is like I mean they were they were over dramatized but I'm like wow that's kind of like me I don't know yeah. um, but uh, um, they show a tsunami in that one and one of the things that struck me is that they they actually didn't show it as violent enough like they were they were using an analog that was more like these tectonic tsunamis which are incredibly violent but um, but the landslide tsunamis. Uh, it's a much more explosive sort of wave. All that energy is right in that breaking front. And then what comes behind it is much weaker. And uh, so, for instance, if you were further inland, uh, so th- there's, there's good things about this, too, as far as, the, um, as your chances of survival. It means that a, that a shorter period landslide tsunami like this, it will tend to dissipate more quickly. It won't travel as far. It also won't uh, penetrate as far into harbors. And... Uh, and it won't, uh, you know, it won't turn corners and that sort sort of thing, uh, with as much of its energy. So it tends to be more, more uh, uh, violent locally, but also more localized, uh, Got, especially yeah. since they tend to occur in uh, more confined water bodies as well. All right. After the last ice age, it must have been an analog, perhaps, of uh, what's going on now with glacier melt. Hell, there was some pretty impressive glacier melts and floods and things going on. Um, landslip tsunami from prehistory. What what evidence is there? Well, this is a very interesting question because we don't really know that much, and this this comes down to my own particular. Um, specialty in this so I, I you know just stop me if I get too too far into the weeds here but um, but uh, most of the studies of the geologic record so the evidence that uh, that a tsunami leaves behind which might pr- be preserved for hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of years um, most of that analysis has been done with tectonic tsunamis in like coastal settings with sandy beaches and big coastal plains. And in these cases, what you see is this um, nice sand layer that's left on land. Um, and uh, it can be sandwiched in the middle of maybe peat bog deposits or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now, um, 
no one had prior to this Tan event. No one. I, there was like one case in Greenland where someone had done a little bit of work on a landslide tsunami deposit, but really, uh, really minimal. And uh, so we really didn't know what to expect when we were looking at the deposits, so the the record that this tsunami was leaving behind. And they're dramatically different. They look um, partly it's because of where they happen. They have a lot more gravel and boulders and stuff available, but it also has to do with the dynamics of that wave, or this is what we think anyway, is that it has to do with the, uh, this, the shorter period, more violent interaction that this wave has with the land as it goes on, on shore. And um, if you were to take the deposits we saw and you went, uh, if you, know, you were to look somewhere where uh, maybe there were these uh, big landslide tsunamis at the end of the last glaciation, those deposits may well be preserved. We think there's a good chance they'd be preserved. But prior to our, our work, I think there'd be very little chance that you would actually recognize them. You would just mistake them for other other processes that might occur during glacial retreat. So that question has never really been answered. And I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty, it could be actually a pretty useful one, both in terms of natural history and and just kind of a, you know an interesting geologic question, but it also can be useful in understanding, like uh, as a glacier retreats out of fjord, of a fjord, does it tend to have you know maybe there's just one of these big uh, landslide tsunamis in a given fjord, and that's it, or do you tend to see a whole series? As Latuya Bay saw, there's been five there, so right. 1958 is just the most recent. Um, and uh, is it like one bay has a whole bunch of them and the next one over has none at all, or do they tend to be more evenly distributed? We don't really know that kind of thing um, because we haven't had the tools previously to look at the geologic record and look back at these you know, past deglaciations where, um, where this sort of thing might have been happening. You know, we're going to have New Zealand scientists, geological scientists, uh, geoscientists, um, Sam McColl up to have a bit of a chat about what we can see in New Zealand with uh, landslips, which is pretty freakishly impressive, actually. But one, um, it's my received knowledge, tell me if I'm wrong, the uh, the island of Molokai in Hawaii. Uh, you can kind of, it's apparently just made of wheat mix, um, and you can see where it's fallen into the sea. Uh, that would have created a bit of a, a wave, would it have not, Hig? Well, this is actually a, this is this is a, a little controversial. Like the um, there, one of the things we don't know about those big um, sector collapse landslides. These just incredibly enormous landslides that come off of, like the Hawaiian Islands, also the Canary Islands. We don't really know how fast they move, and it's possible they move very very slowly, in which case they may not produce much of a wave, mm-hmm. or it's possible they go whoop and they make a giant wave. And um, there is to my eye, some pretty compelling evidence that there have been some very big waves generated. There's, in particular, in the Canary Islands, there's, uh, there's some cases where they found boulders that seem to have come from the coastline or perched way up on these high, these high mountaintops. So, um, so there's some evidence of that. There are also a number of papers that look at these gravelly deposits, and some people are interpreting them as the deposits of tsunamis. And other people say, no, that's there. Some other, there's some other cause. They're old beaches, this sort of thing. And um, and there's uh, a, a pretty um, a fair number of papers and some fairly heated controversy around this question. It's actually one of the things I'm excited about. Again, with the, the results we have from Tan, is I hope that some of those results may help people go back to those deposits 
and have a have another shot at interpreting them and at at understanding what what these deposits on Molokai and elsewhere what they might actually mean. All right, there have been a few documentaries made uh, to scare the pants off us about uh, is it La Palma in Canary Islands? Yeah. Half of that's going to fall into the sea in uh, in fifteen seconds, and it'll drown New York. Right. That one. That that's that's. Uh, I would say that that my I'm not a tsunami modeler, but uh, I, I know a few tsunami modelers, and from my conversations with them, they are highly skeptical of that result. That okay. that is uh, that the the size of the tsunami by the time it's crossed the the Atlantic, it might still be a problem in harbors and such, but that it's not like this. I think they had 50 meters or some incredible height along the eastern seaboard of the U.S. and uh, and I think um, that's not probably not pro- plausible. All right. However, a landslip tsunami is Latuya Bay and the evidence, the eyewitness evidence, even if we say 500 feet high as a wall of water, that is something else, isn't it? That just doesn't happen with your regular tsunami. Yeah, you get these really these these really big and and I would say this about tectonic tsunamis too. Now maybe people have some intuition about them because there's so many videos that have been taken by eyewitnesses and so that's maybe helped people develop some kind of a accurate picture of what these are like. But in a lot of ways when you scale things up, I mean we're not just not used to seeing water move on this scale. And um you know, when we were out in the field like we were finding um there'd be trees with uh with uh, rocks embedded in them um, almost looks like someone shot the tree with a shotgun or something, but there are all these little tiny pebbles. Um, I actually found one site at, uh, where there was a kind of head sized cobble that had been thrown beyond the furthest point that the water made it to so um, uh, some of these things where you're, it's it's it 's a little difficult for me anyway to picture how it is that moving water does this and it 's and I think the reason it can be it is so intu- non intuitive is just that it is so beyond the scale that we would usually uh, encounter in our normal life. All right. And the just to sum up the research again, uh, with retreating glaciers, uh, you're saying this is an increased likelihood. But where is the potential energy, uh, the, 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 the suspects for the areas where this is perhaps going to happen? Well, you know, so 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 if you're if you're to start looking around and saying, well, which which places should I worry about? Um, you know, the first thing you're looking for is just steep, glaciated mountains. Um, that's that's uh, which is a very broad category. But then you want to see if, if, or you don't want to see if you're you're hoping to avoid such a, an event. Um, deep water. It actually takes uh, quite deep water to uh, in order to get a big tsunami because you have to have some depth for that 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 landslide to go through for it to transfer energy into the water and then right. make a very large tsunami. And then often when you look at places that, that um, uh, will end up fail, failing later, um, you'll see uh, cracks in the ground. You'll actually see that the ground is moving actively. And, I, and Sam will probably be able to give you some really interesting examples of this. Uh, but uh, the ground will actually move. And this in Tan, it moved for um, uh, about two decades prior to when it finally failed. And so that is a big warning sign. If, if you've, and I'm looking at us not far from where I live and, and further west in Alaska. And, and, yeah, there's cracks that are opening up and other signs the land is moving there. So that's a, that's a big one. Um, if you have signs that, the, that there is permafrost and it's melting out of the mountains, that's, that's a big one. And, of course, just 
rapid glacial retreat. Um, the the uh, the both the amount of glacial retreat vertically, especially. So if you're losing hundreds of meters of ice, um, and also how quickly that happens, those will both be factors in the likelihood that a landslide will happen. So there's places in um, uh, here in Alaska, the actually area where Latuya Bay is and where Tom Fjord are, that has some of the tallest, weakest mountains with the most rapidly retreating glaciers and dramatically deep water. Uh, it's it's kind of a prime spot for this one, one of the um, most dramatic in the world as far as uh, potential for generating these events. Um, uh, but there are areas of Greenland where permafrost melts is a huge factor. There, um, there have been historic landslides in Norway that have, um, have uh, destroyed villages that are um, there. I think the, 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 the factor that maybe tops the list is just incredibly steep slopes over deep, deep water. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and you start looking in areas where there are there are lakes that are getting exposed. There have been uh, landslides into lakes. We've had one in Alaska just recently, um, but there are there are many places where where there's potential to get a tsunami on a lake, and then it can run down the valley and be destructive downstream as well. All right, Brettwood Higman, otherwise known as Hig Higman. Uh, thanks very much for your time. When we return, Sam McColl on New Zealand's amazing uh, landslip history. I think we gold medal, actually, uh, <laughs> and potential for the future as well, because uh, our glaciers are retreating as well. But thank you very much, Hig, and uh, appreciate it. Thank you. It was good talking. Thanks. The Weekend Variety Wireless. For a New Zealand perspective on this landslip thing, landslides, creating tsunamis, and landslides just in general, um, Sam McColl uh, joins us. He's a um, geoscientist at Massey University. Thanks, Sam. Uh, thanks for having me along. Uh, we're just speaking to your colleague. He said, say hi, so I've done that f- for you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's an interesting bit of research, retreating glaciers, and the mountains might fall into the water and create a hell of a lot of damage, something not many people have been thinking about as a consequence of climate change. But um, New Zealand, uh, we're on the globe. We're an exception to this. Are there threats for New Zealand? Yes, there are. Um, we're a, you know, a mountainous landscape. Um, we have active tectonics producing large earthquakes. We have high rainfall and so on. We have the potential for large bits of hill slope to fall down and we have lots of water around us um, and within the landscape we've got lakes. So there's potential, yes, for uh, a tsunami to be generated by a landslide in New Zealand. Okay, and the results of it, um, as we heard from Hag, it's, uh, it's it maybe an impressive sight if half a um, mountainside falls into the lake. Yes, uh, we haven't in New Zealand had a tsunami in historical times generated of that size, um, you know, what is it, nearly 200 metre high wave. Um, but we have had smaller tsunamis produced by um, smaller landslides in New Zealand in our, in our history. Oh, yeah. Um, we've had them in, uh, in the fjords, so in a very similar setting to, to the Pan Fjord um, tsunami, but without glaciers there today. The glaciers have long since gone, but there's still steep rocks, uh, and they occasionally do fall down. So there have been uh, tsunamis, and... Uh, one of them, in doubtful sound in 1987, produced a, a much smaller wave, a two to three metre high wave, but it was enough to um, lift a boat up and smash it onto a wharf, um, damaging that, that boat. 
And that's luck, not loveliness. It's uh, we can't organise how big the landslip might be. No, um, we can't. And we've got. We've, but what we can do is, is look through the, the geological record, yeah. uh, and we see evidence in the geological record of very large landslides happening in New Zealand in the past. And if something like that uh, happened again, we could be in a position where there could be a, a much larger tsunami in New Zealand. All right. We can see some landslips that have uh, happened before, and it's received knowledge which is a dangerous thing to claim, uh, but you're, you're a, a geoscientist. The Monowai area, if you have a look at it on Google Earth, listeners, uh, you can see where a mountain was. Um, and is that the largest terrestrial landslip known on the planet? It is, it is huge. It is certainly one of the largest and possibly the largest of its type on in the terrestrial part of the world. So there are bigger landslides happened um, under the oceans Um, and there are arguably bigger types of of landslides that have happened other parts of the world but certainly this is the the largest of its type and it is it is huge so we're talking here about 27 cubic kilometers of material fell down in that landslide and that to put that in perspective I'm from Wellington so uh, you know a landmark for me there is the Westpac Stadium Westpac Stadium has would hold if you filled it up with water or, or landslide debris, it would hold about a million cubic meters of material. Now, a cubic kilometer would hold about 1,000 of those stadiums. So, we're talking about 27,000 Westpac stadiums falling down a mountain, which is really quite spectacular. And as you say, you know, it, it, looking on Google Earth, it's huge. And it's actually so big that it took geologists a little while to actually identify it in the landscape because of the scale of it. Uh, well, the factor, uh, did it fall down in um, 30 seconds, five minutes, a month or an hour? <laughs> a very good question. Um, it's, it probably fell down pretty quickly, but it might have started to fall down um, slowly, so it may have been losing strength over time, and there may have been signs that it was, you know, going to fall down. But the fact that it travelled as far as it did um, suggests that it probably had a bit of momentum when it was moving, right. uh, and, and it probably did fall down pretty quickly. All right, and plenty of deep water there as well. So, and that thing, nothing special about being uh, how many thousand years ago? I mean, these sort of things. When was it? Do you know? The, the the best estimate at the moment is around about 12,000 years ago. Okay. At that time in New Zealand, um, there were still some pretty big bits of ice, some big glaciers in the landscape, but they had they had they were in the process of, of melting and getting smaller. So in that particular location, what would have probably been called, what you can call the Monowai Glacier, which would have um, filled Monowai Lake at one point, um, that would have retreated a fair way back up its valley into the place, uh, its source area. Um, and that retreat process, the process of that glacier uh, retreating past the base of the slope was probably part of the reason that that slope became unstable. Right, and that's exactly what uh, Hegg was, as a factor, to watch out for with um, climate change. Yes, exactly. And, and I mean... But that was 12,000 years ago. We've lost an awful lot of ice um, over that time. We're still losing ice in our mountains. 
our glaciers are a lot smaller than they were you know, 12,000 or even 20,000 years ago, certainly. But um, they're still losing mass today. We've, we've got glaciers retreating uh, and thinning, and we've lost something like um, 30% of, of the mass of our glaciers in, in the last four decades or so. Wow. And that is a lack of a retreat wall. Uh, is the potential energy for this to happen? And when you think about the Alpine Fault, either due or overdue, that would be a, a, something to shake things up a bit too, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So you've got the retreating ice, and you've also got a warming climate, which means that some of the rock in the really high parts of our say, southern Alps, um, they've got frozen water within them. And as that frozen water starts to melt, you actually lose a bit of strength because that, that ice within the fracture is actually binds things together until it starts to warm up and melt. So you've got those two things. Then you've got the retreat of the glaciers producing lakes, which means that you've got a source of a potential to you know, displace water and create a tsunami. And then, yes, you're right, you've got uh, a potential for earthquakes, which could be the final trigger to knock bits of rock down into these lakes. There was a recorded Taupo event uh, when something fell in? Yes, and, and in fact, you know... So what Hig was talking about was landslides generating tsunamis in, in glaciated environments like like Fiordland was and you know parts of our central southern Alps which still have glaciers. But you know, Lake Taupo was produced by a very different process by volcanism and we we can have tsunamis in, in any lake really that has high steep topography around it. And at Lake Taupo in 1910, uh, there was a, a landslide of about 3 million cubic metres, so that's about 3 Westpac stadiums that fell off um, a steep fault scar huh. and travelled down and um, went into the lake and it generated what's thought to be about a three metre high tsunami wave, which is not really big enough to worry about by the time it gets to the other end of Lake Taupo. Uh, but if a bigger piece fell off into a deeper bit of water, you know, there could be a larger tsunami produced. Wakara Moana is another one you can have a look at on Google Earth, and it's just so clear. It's an oyster-shaped piece of rock which has fallen off. It's like a sorry, oyster, mussel, like a mussel, a shucked mm, mussel, mm, mm. and you can see where it was and where it ended up, uh, all in one big hunk. That's a thing to see, isn't it? It is, it is. I mean, and that, that one, which happened about 2,000 years ago, uh, and it's also very large, about... Um, two cubic kilometres in volume. That didn't fall into a body of water, but what's very interesting about that one is it, it fell into, uh, into a valley with a, had a stream flowing through it, and it blocked that. And there's now a large lake, Lake Waikaramwana, that has been impounded behind that, uh, that landslide deposit. So these landslides can produce lakes, and we know that this is an area which does occasionally produce landslides. So we now have the potential for another landslide to fall into this time a lake and possibly generate a small tsunami. Right. Um, 2,000 years ago was yesterday. There's no reason why it can't happen in the future. Uh, but will we get much warning? It, that depends. Um, unfortunately, if a, a large earthquake happens for which we, we, we do not get warning, right. um, that, that could produce a, a landslide quite out of the blue. Um, however... There are also um, some signs that are given off by a hill slope before it fails, uh, if it's sort of losing strength over the long term. So we, what we can do is we can see sometimes within a hill slope 
uh, fractures starting to develop or scarps starting to develop or the bottom of the slope starting to bulge out. And that can be used as a warning that there's an unstable slope and it could, it could fall down in the future. So monitoring that would potentially provide some warning of a tsunami. Right, yeah, but as you say, with an earthquake, kind of all bets are off because we don't know what the dynamics of it are, let alone when one's going to happen. That's right. But what we can do, at least, is be aware of those sorts of hazards and identify the slopes and the locations that are more likely to have landslides. And for example, in Milford Sound, coming back to the fjords, there are at least 18 landslide deposits in the fjord that have been mapped by um, seismic data and, and um, mapping the sea, the, the sea floor there. And so we know that they fall down there uh, and we know that there's a potential that they could happen again. So, you know, preventing very large scale developments in a place that is likely to have high um, or likely to have a large hazardous event is probably a prudent measure. All right. Hey, look, thank you so much, Dr. Sam McColl, geoscientist at Massey University, um, for a bit of our landslip history 101, which is pretty remarkable when you can, uh, can, you know, of all over the globe, that that Monowai thing is the biggest known on land. Absolutely. Yeah. We, we are a pretty remarkable country. We're small, but we've got extreme things going on. Yeah, good one. Sam McColl, thank you very much. Thank you, Graham.